Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us again on the Peace Building Podcast. It's uh, such a pleasure to have you with us. The guest I have on the show today, I think more uh, as clearly as anyone links to my passion in the world, which is uh, showing the irrefutable link between getting gender right on the planet and building a more peaceful world. In other words, creating true partnerships between men and women no more one up, one down, one gender more valuable than the other, and creating a planet that is no longer plagued by the devastation of war and armed conflict and all of the amazing, uh, the quantity of planetary resources that is currently going into supporting our military budget and, um, yeah, and war in general. So um, Dr. Scylla Elworthy is a three times Nobel Prize, Nobel Peace Prize nominee and uh, knows about peace building uh, from the very top levels and the grassroots. She, um, she was awarded, um, she is this nominee because of her work with the Oxford Research Group to develop effective dialogue between nuclear arms nuclear weapons policymakers worldwide and their critics. Um, and she also is the founder of Peace Direct, which is an amazing organization. Um, she founded that in 2002, which funds, promotes, and learns from local peace builders in conflict areas. Uh, she, peace Direct uh, was voted the best charity in 2005. Um, I obviously am going to post her amazing bio uh, she also co-founded Rising Women, Rising World in 2013 and FemQ in 2016 to establish the qualities of feminine intelligence for women and men as essential to use in building a safer world. Um, when you listen to her, you will just hear her sharp intelligence and uh, really deep experience, but also that she walks her talk. Um, with her deep listening skills and her uh, very collaborative um, conversational style. I felt like she very much took me in, in spite of like how, um, I, I don't know, she's like, uh, has um, a tremendous, tremendous, much more experience than I do out there in the world. So I have a lot of deep respect for what she's done. Uh, so I think, um, I, I hope you listen to the whole interview, but just some highlights. Um, what I basically asked of her is to speak, you, use this opportunity to speak to the women of the world. Uh, what's, um, why is it time for us to really step into not just our leadership, but the leadership about um, creating a more peaceful world? Uh, what's the vision of what can happen here? And what are some of the obstacles that she sees um, that are that get in our way of doing this. So she's going to do that. And uh, but I also asked her to um, start the interview uh, with um, summarizing why war is so outmoded. Um, many of the of the people I've interviewed on this podcast have spoken to that. Um, and of course, she does. She's written a book recently called The Business Plan for Peace, which, I totally recommend to listeners. It's very short, accessible, clear as a whistle in terms of what's going on out there and how we can turn this around. Um, so anyway, in the beginning of that book, she she 
um, clarifies why war has basically gone past. It's what she called her. It's it's uh, well, basically why war is outmoded. That the annual I mean, ju- and just looking at the numbers, I think sometimes following the numbers is is really helpful um, because at the moment, annually, we spend one thousand six hundred and eighty six billion dollars on militarization uh, worldwide. That's one thousand six hundred and eighty six billion dollars worldwide on militarization. And I will say that my country, the United States, is, I think, uh, by far, by far, by far the largest uh, spender in that regard. I think um, greater than all other military, uh, five times greater, nine times greater than all other military uh, spenders combined. Um, Sorry that I'm not giving the exact statistics, but it's pretty enormous. Um, And that's compared to what it would take to wipe out starvation, 30 billion. What it would take to bring clean water everywhere, 10 billion. These are small, very small sums compared to that $1,686 billion that we're spending on war, uh, preparation for war. I don't even know if those numbers are including the impact of war afterwards, all the trauma that's created, et cetera. So the numbers are staggering. Um, So the other thing that she says at the outset that is a really interesting insight is um, that it's occurred to her um, that the five permanent members of the Security Council of the United Nations, um, that is the United States, Russia, British, France, and China, are also very regularly in the top five arms sellers of the world. Um, And, uh, you know, says no wonder we have war when the UN is dominated by the great arms sellers. Um, I'm I'm not a UN basher, but I think it's really important that we start looking at these kind of phenomenon um, if we are serious about wanting to create a more peaceful planet. The second thing that she highlights really clearly um, is that women-led peace initiatives through the work that she's done with Peace Direct. Uh, Peace Direct is profiling uh, women peace builders and that it seems that um, the women-led peace initiatives are having the largest effect. And um, she points out that often the media shows us male leaders, what they think, what they do, and often makes fun of female leaders when they don't succeed. And um, how critical it is to bring women to um, to the peace table. I think in um, she she quotes that in 2009. I think these are statistics put together by UN, uh, UN Women Unifem at the time. Um, uh, in in 2009, only two two point five percent of the representatives uh, in peace tables were women. And those peace agreements only lasted five years on average. Uh, now the woman, the the number has gone up to ten percent, and those agreements are are lasting twice as long. But obviously, those numbers need to um, improve even further if we want to get really serious about this. And then she talks um, about the obs- You know, one of the I guess what she sees as as a key obstacle for women. Uh, in terms of really taking our leadership seriously here. And that's that um, this inner critic that we have, that we're not good enough, uh, that we're not enough, that um, just overcoming all that unconscious messaging that we are not entitled to take our place, 
at the table and say what we have to say. Um, she describes her own personal journey around this, finding her own fire in the belly and uh, ability to find her voice and learn her worth. It actually came to her very, you know, the way it often does to so many of us in some kind of a very challenging situation of a brain disease that she had when she was in her 30s that had her for, I think, something like six years really in pain. And all that went kept going through her brain, her head was, you know, who am I and what's my purpose here? So anyway, if you are... Uh, female, male, really interested on up-leveling the planet and taking us higher, I really encourage you to listen to this very sane and uh, deeply experienced person. A talk with great humility um, and great uh, vision about what can happen here to create a more peaceful world. So I'll catch you on the other side of the interview. Um, please enjoy. I think um, you will not be wasting your time. I bring you Dr. Silla Elworthy. So Silla, you are uh, amazing and your work is amazing. And I'm just so honored to have you here. Yeah, my um, as you know, my work for the last 30 years has brought me to a place of integrating peace building and empowering women. And um, it took me a while to come across you. I'm really grateful to Peter Hawkins for mentioning you because that's so much the cornerstone of who you are and what you have done. And, and um, you know, you've really, uh, you've been such a, and are such an incredible leader. And as you know, I, I wanted to frame this podcast for you to really be speaking to women, for us to be speaking to women. Um, but before we, we go there, I think it's really important um, because so many people are in this fog about war. And I think it just is one of those things that has to be said and reset and reset. And I'm sure you wouldn't disagree uh, about why war is, as you put it, I think you say past its cell date, or I, I forget the language that you use, but, you know, sometimes I think it's a little bit like the climate change thing. There's been such a PR campaign to the contrary that even people that I talk to that are, I think of as really well-read and, they still really buy, have drunk the, the Kool-Aid. I don't know, it's probably a U.S. saying. Uh, they've really swallowed the medicine that war is essential. So, um, you know, if you wouldn't mind just to start by, uh, by uh, speaking to that briefly, that's not the subject of the interview exactly, but just, you know, why is war outmoded? Who's, who, why is it still happening? Who's benefiting from this? And um, what's it costing us? I know that's not a long, that's not a brief thing, but I'm asking you to speak to that briefly. Just war is outdated and outmoded now because we know enough, and we've studied it, and we've found all the evidence that preventing war is not complicated. It requires undoing some of the things that we do and doing some things that we don't do. 
So undoing the things that we do is spending currently $1,686 billion a year on militarization. While the world, the world, while $30 billion would wipe out starvation worldwide and $10 billion would bring clean water to every child on the planet. So $10 billion, $30 billion as against $1,686 billion that we spend on war or preparing for war. Um, it's become obscene, and many people haven't even noticed the enormity of that expenditure. At the same time, we know, those of us who have worked, I've worked both on nuclear weapons policy making, bringing nuclear weapons policy makers together to talk to each other and to talk to their critics, and ultimately to sit down together and design the basis for two treaties. So I know about it from the top level and also from the grassroots in that I've spent the last 16 years working with locally led peace initiatives, which are expanding so fast now as people in their own areas know what to do to stop armed violence escalating. Uh, when we first did a survey in 1999, to see whether this was the case. We were able to identify, and we being Peace Direct, that's the organization I set up on the back of this research, we were able to identify 350 viable, effective, um, answerable, locally-led peace initiatives worldwide. When we did the same research last year, that number had escalated to 1,600. Wow. So the phenomenal that is, a phenomenon that is all over the world, even in Northern Ireland, right next door to where we live in England. And it's also true all over America. We've recently done a map of all the locally led peace initiatives in the United States, which you can find on a site called Peace Insight. Insight spelled I-N-S-I-G-H-T. And so this is a worldwide phenomenon. It's not just in darkest Africa. It's happening everywhere. I liked your metaphor. I think it was in the book of mushrooms. It's kind of like mushrooms popping up through the cement or something. Well, this, is, this is what it's like. And yet it's hardly reported. But the stories, the, the accounts of what's happening are so incredibly dramatic. Let me just tell you one. And that's the, um, the history of a young woman called Gulilai Ismail in Northwest Pakistan. That's probably one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a woman. When she was 15, Gulilai started getting girls into school. <coughs> Excuse me. And her colleague, Malala Yousafzai, as you know, got shot in the head for doing just that. Quite undeterred, Gulilai, who is fearless, she was 15 then. And she's now 26. And what she has gone on to do is train young women and young men to go into the madrasas, the schools where jihadis are being trained for suicide bombing, and identify those who are intent on suicide bombing, go home with them to their families, and discuss why the Quran would not approve of suicide bombing. 
and they have so far been able to dissuade 203 suicide bombers from their mission. Amazing. Now, if that's not effective conflict prevention, I don't know what is. The stories that just aren't getting told. So to just cycle back to that point um, about uh, war itself, I, I was in South Sudan a year or so ago and <laughs> Uh, a an older man, just a lovely guy who had fought in the civil war there, he was like shaking his head and saying, you know, nothing is really going to change here until all these small arms get stopped, you know, they're not, they, somebody stops dumping them on this country. And as you know, you know, my country, the United States, just, I mean, it has a ridiculous amount of shootings and is having a horrible time putting an end to it. And I, and I think I hear it. I think it's the same. It's the same problem. It's the same thing going on. And so if you just could say a few more words about that, the motivation behind these large scale military uh, interventions, who's profiting off of this and what's the motive here? Well, they, there are a lot of people who make money out of war. Um, not only the arms producers, but the arms traders. Because as soon as there is um, confusion and chaos that arrives in war, um, everybody piles in to make money like um, uh, people who are drug smuggling, people who are trafficking uh, humans, mainly women, um, money laundering. All this happens in chaos. So there are a lot of people besides the weapons manufacturers who um, make a lot of money out of war and in whose interests it is to keep chaos going. Having said that, we must look at the facts. And I only realized this when I wrote this book. It suddenly dawned on me that the five permanent members of the Security Council in the United Nations, that's the ones who have the veto. And as you remember- Could you list them for the listeners, Silla, actually? I beg your pardon? Could you list them for the listeners? Yes, that's um, the United States, Russia, Britain, France, and China. Have the, they're permanently on the Security Council and they all have the veto. And as you will recall, Russia has used the veto a lot recently to, uh, to basically not stop the conflict in Syria, which the other members have all wanted to do. Now, what I suddenly realized and the penny dropped is that those five countries are also very regularly in the top five arms sellers in the world. Mm -hmm. And no wonder we have war <laughs> when you have this UN dominated by the great arms sellers. So uh, this um, situation has got totally out of hand and it is now up to us as citizens to realize that situation and take a whole lot of practical measures that I list in my book and that we're busy pursuing to bring, bring armed conflict to an end. Yeah, I just one more point on that. I mean, I just, I guess I, as an American, as a US citizen, I feel particular, as a woman and a US citizen, I feel particular responsibility around that. Um, in that my country is, I think, what, um, uh, spends more on the military than, uh, five times more on the military than the second most largest, which I think is China. I mean, it's just the numbers that the US is spending on, 
on military interventions are staggering. And uh, yeah. So thank you for that. I, I, so I wanted to turn to uh, speaking to women because, um, you know, I, I, I think I mentioned to you in our correspondence, I, I know that for me, uh, Leigh McGowey was such an incredible example in Liberia, what she did. And, um, and just to summarize, I mean, she, uh, for the listeners, if you haven't ever seen the movie Pray the Devil Back to Hell, it is totally worth your while. It is very moving. But Lema, who is a, you know, has a lot of moral integrity. <laughs> you can just feel it when you're with her. Uh, I mean, she basically, I'm sure she didn't do it single-handedly, but she organized, she was, what, she was the main leader of organizing women across religious lines to keep it very simple, wear white, very much in kind of a Lysistrata type of style, um, and keep their message of, uh, we want peace now. This is in the Liberian Civil War in 2003, I think, or whatever it was. And um, they really brought the whole thing down. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a longer, more complicated story, but, uh, but by just sticking together and then also I mean, I think as they were wearing white, they also did uh, stop having sex with their husbands, I believe, which I thought, you know, that is very much Liza Strada. I don't know if she got the idea from that. But the other, the other wonderful thing that they did, which was really incredibly innovative, is <clears throat> they found that the men from all the different militias and different fa factions who were supposed to be negotiating peace were enjoying life in a very smart hotel, having loads to eat and drink, and they didn't want to quit on the process at all. So they didn't want to come to a resolution. The women realized this and surrounded the building, got the uh, assistance of the guards to close the windows and the doors. And they said to the men inside, we will let you out when you agree a peace agreement. <laughs> and the men tried to jump out the window, tried hammering on the doors, everything, and eventually had to realize that they now had to get on with it. And then in 12 hours, they agreed a peace agreement, and it was done. And it was the women who did it. The other thing that she did, which I think I'm quoting this accurately, is when one of Charles Taylor's henchmen started coming towards her to say, who's in charge here? You're ob obstructing justice. And I remember Lehman just getting so like outraged obstructing justice. He started coming towards her to arrest her and she started to strip because she knows, she knew that if you see your mother naked, you go to hell. And it's just like a, so I don't know, there's there is a very powerful example of the of a lot of the different aspects of who we are as women. And then I mentioned to you also this, I don't know, little known factor. I don't know if it, I mean, I bought the book, but about how women brought the process of dueling in the 19th century or the, uh, to an end just simply by, by laughing at it, you know, that this is a ridiculous practice and it's got to end. So I wanted you to, because I think it's time, I know you agree, you say, you know, I think it's time for women to really take uh, the leadership on this. And I was hoping you could speak to that and what you could see as a vision and then what you see as our obstacles because I think some of our obstacles are are more cookie cutter than we might like to believe <laughs> um, and they depend on which part of the world you're living in for sure um, but yeah 
Well, it, it's far more than a vision, Susan. It's an actuality. Um, the organization that we run from London and New York and various capitals in the South is called Peace Direct. And we have gotten to know those who are preventing war in over 44 countries. And what we find is that those that are women-led are the ones that are having the biggest effect. There's another thing I would add to that. Um, and that is that um, the, the quality of consciousness that we introduce into peace building makes the difference between success and failure. And women in many, most countries of the world where there is conflict have realized that taking their stand in a, in a, a very, very profoundly grounded way is what makes a difference. Let me give you an example. Um, when Mandela came out of jail in South Africa, in 1989, he realized that there was likely to be a civil war. And so he set up a system of local and national peace councils. And at the very local level, those who were put on the peace councils were people who were trusted popular. And that included midwives, teachers, magistrates, um, and some very um, trading women, housewives, and so forth, but people that the community trusted. So maybe uh, half of them were women, or do you know, or? Oh, oh at least. At least. And, yeah. and so when there was a real um, conflict brewing up in one of the townships, say in Cape Town, where somebody was being necklaced, that's when you put a car around their neck and light, put petrol in it and light it. When the women got wind of that, they, would, they were trained and they would walk into the melee, the shouting, screaming mob about to do this lynching with their hands raised like that. And they would say, stop this, go home. Your mother would be ashamed of you. And, and complete silence fell and women, and, the, and the women were able to persuade the men to stop this. So there's, hundreds of examples of that. So it's up to us now, particularly women who are in safe countries, nobody's shooting at us, we've got enough to eat, we've got a roof over our head, we've got education. It's now the ball is in our court to get our governments to cease their, basically their encouragement of war. Scylla, do you mind uh, taking a little step backwards and uh, give just a, a, I don't know, whatever you want to say about it, you probably could talk about the rest of the podcast about this, but uh, a, a little bit of a person, more some something personal about how you got the fire in the belly to be the kind of leader that you are around this. Like what, what were the seeds that got planted in you when you trace them back? Oh, yes. Um, I, 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 <clears throat> I had four big elder brothers, all stronger and faster and uh, quicker than I was. And when I was 11, they gave me a shotgun and taught me how to fire it. And I went and did something that was totally taboo. I went out into the woods by myself, pointed the barrels of the gun up into a tree where there was a nest and pulled the trigger. And down on my head came yolks of egg, sticks, twigs, shells, 
and the embryos of baby chicks and the sky blue feathers of the mother bird. And I was so shocked by what I'd done, by the violence that I was capable of, that I took the gun home and put it away and never touched it again. And then when I was a bit older, when I was 13, um, I was watching a grainy old black and white TV in my parents' living room, and I saw Soviet tanks rolling into Budapest in Hungary and running over protesters who were just a little bit older than me. And I rushed upstairs and started packing my suitcase, and my mum came up and she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to Budapest. I had no idea where Budapest was. And she said, what for? And I said, there's something terrible happening there and I have to go. And she said, don't be so silly. And I burst into tears. And bless her, she got it. She understood how important that was to me, age 13. And she said, listen, you're too young to be any use. You've got to get trained. And if you'll just unpack your suitcase, I will see that you get trained. And she did. Do you have anything, any other links that you make about why you were somebody that even responded that way to what you were seeing? Um, I don't know. I think you're very idealistic in your early teens. That's true of young men and young women. And um, um, I don't know. I, she sent me off to work in a a holiday camp for refugees and people who'd been in concentration camps. Yeah, she was great. And I sat there peeling potatoes and listening to the stories of people who had been in Auschwitz and so on. And my heart just broke listening to these stories. And I think it's when your heart breaks that you're motivated, um, sometimes unstoppably, to do what you can. And that's when, you know, nowadays, with the news as horrific as it is and the amount of violence that we see every day on television, so many young people get in touch with me and say, what can I do? I'm horrified by the world that I live in. And so what I say to them is, tell me what breaks your heart. Because that's where the energy is. That's where the motivation is. And so they tell me. It could be um, wounded animals, it could be child refugees, whatever. And then I say, tell me what your skills are. Are you good at social media? Are you good at crowdfunding? Are you good at organizing your friends? Um, can, you, um, <clears throat> can you identify ways to put what you care about into action? And then they tell me their skills and they say, right, well, match your skills with what breaks your heart. And that will give you your path forward. And I can guarantee you that you will draw people around you because of your passion. And in two years, you'll be functioning to make a real contribution to the world. And then you'll be full of joy instead of full of anguish and anxiety because the people who really do this work like Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Desmond Tutu in South Africa, 
he is the most joyous person I have ever met. He's, he's just um, full of laughter and full of love. And, and he's been in the most frightening situations you can imagine. Yeah. I know for me, I similar. I mean, I just grew up at that point, the US, the media was, it was showing us everything that was going on in Vietnam. I mean, and I, I mean, I did, that was my steady diet, just sitting there like <laughs> watching the My Lai massacre over dinner. I mean, it's just, but what an, what an impression that had on a young mind. I mean, I completely framed me forever. Um, you know, the other thing that framed me a lot was that I also grew up in my situation, I grew up in a very patriarch, what I would call a very patriarchal household um, with a very, with a brother that was very privileged and the girls were really stripped of their power and not blaming anybody. It just was what it was. Uh, but uh, it has also framed me, uh, formed me. And I um, wonder what you, you know, your, if you could say something about your understanding of patriarchy and its connection to the system of war that is going on. Mm. Or even if you think in terms of patriarchy. Yeah, I don't use the word very much. Um, because I think I know now that both women and men have the capacity of what I would call feminine intelligence and masculine intelligence. And let's face it, um, the masculine way of doing things has um, framed all the major decisions over the last 3000 years. And what have we had but a succession of wars? All our history, I don't know about in the, in the States, but when we're taught history in Europe, it's just a series of battles and, and victories and so forth. And we got the same education in the United States. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure. And so, and war is so glorified, and yet every soldier who has come back from war comes back shocked, limping, often traumatized for life, as we see, you know, with. PTSD and soldiers trying to recover from what they've seen. So our leaders know, unfortunately, that their ratings, their voting ratings go up when they declare war. Unfortunately, that's the truth. And that's a terrible hangover from the past and not, the, not realizing the damage that war does to you know, they, I know because I've seen it, and I'm sure you have too, that it takes at least three generations for a family to recover from the trauma of war. And it takes a nation three generations, and, and we don't learn the lessons. So now I believe that it is the job of us women to bring, with the men who have feminine intelligence as well, to bring the qualities of feminine intelligence to bear on our work and our leaders. And those qualities include obviously things like compassion, using our intuition, being inclusive, um, using our caring facility. We care for the earth because we are, we're grounded in the earth. Our cycles resonate with the moon. We know what it's like to give birth, and therefore our concept of what is 
sacred and, and has to be protected is stronger, I believe. Uh, and that obviously exists in men too, but they're less encouraged. Well, we, we, we often forget as women, but we, we do by nature know the sacredness of life. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I do use the word patriarchy and I do think without blame. I'm not really interested in that, but I, I, uh, I've been recently watching Ken Burns' thing on the Vietnam War. He's a filmmaker and he did a long documentary that documented but the whole Vietnam War process um, or the American War, depending on where your perspective is coming from. Um, but I find myself as a mom getting just uh, so much anger looking at those at that point. I mean, there were a lot of, uh, there were a lot of women on the Viet Cong side, but on the US side, they were, they were all 18 year old boys. They were like, and my son is like, now he's a 22 year old man. But uh, just thinking about the ways that boys get acculturated into this whole superstructure. And um, as I told you, I just ran a gender dialogue here and I was just listening to the conditioning of both men and women around this, that in many ways, I think has been framed by this, you know, um, but I don't, I, I always quote Kurt Lewin, who's a sort of the grandfather of uh, social, one of the grandfathers of social psychology is, and I'm not sure he actually said this, but that everyone understands uh, authority, but democracy is a learned behavior. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. But I, I think we get so mesmerized by this strong man, daddy, take care of us. You know, like in this country, the whole Donald Trump thing. Um, uh, but women, I think, have really kind of have to get, we have to get over the, the um, whatever that, whatever that uh, trance is about this. Because um, I think that's what it's going to take to create, to, to get rid of the one up, one down uh, one side being more important than the other um, kind of thing. I, I, and, and I think many of us women don't realize how the trail is being blazed by courageous women all over the place. We don't hear those stories. And um, one of the things that Peace Direct does and that I've tried to do in my books is to profile the women that are doing extraordinary things. Um, and one such is Aung San Suu Kyi in, in Burma. She's, she's run into a lot of trouble recently uh, over the Rohingya uh, massacre, which I, I, you know, hold her government responsible for carrying out. Um, but that woman was in solitary confinement for years, for 15 years. And when she came out of um, jail, she was then leading a revolution to, to um, try to remove the military government. And she did that at terrible personal cost. Her husband and children were back here in the UK. Her husband contracted cancer and she was continually told by the government that she could return back to England, but she could never return to Burma. And she chose to stay and lead the resistance, which she did with brilliance at the time. But what she suffered has, I think, left her very, uh, very traumatized. But there are so many women. Did, did you know 
Do you know how many women presidents there have been in the world in I history? Don't know. Um, no, ask anybody and you'll find they say mm, three, 10, something like 50. There have been 50 elected women presidents. And so we don't know their stories. We don't hear about them. We constantly, the media shows us male leaders and what they think and what they do and makes fun of female leaders when they don't 100% succeed. Really glad you, I didn't, I was not aware of that. And it's interesting how it just does those little or big pieces of information really do shift awareness about uh, things. But, but I, I, I don't know if you agree, but I do think there's um, some internal obstacles that women have. And I wondered if you would speak to what do you think gets in our way and what got in your way? Uh, yeah, if you could speak a little bit to that. Mm. Well, I think it's mostly the inner critic, you know, it's, it's that nasty little voice that sits on our shoulder and says, you're not good enough. This won't do. You have to try harder. You have to do more. The people, and I, I don't know if you saw that thing in Harvard Business School that they actually had to get um, coaches for the women to raise their hand because they suffered lack of self-confidence. They didn't really think, I mean, they came in with the same kind of stats, obviously, as the guys, but they they didn't feel like what they had to say was really about absolutely we're schooled from very small that this we're given all kinds of unconscious messages that we're not uh we're not privileged we're not we're not entitled to take our place and and say what we have to say and so i i definitely had that and i had to do a lot of inner work which i did well, what happened to me is I had um, a brain disease just after my daughter was born when I was 30. And it, it, it put me in a coma for two weeks. And when I, when I came out of the coma, I had ferocious headaches for six years. And there was only one thing that went round and round in my soggy brain. And that was, who am I? Wow. Who am I? Why am I here? And it, it wouldn't leave me until I had to search around to find somebody who could help me find the answer. Who am I? And that was in the mid 70s. And not many people were asking those questions then. They are now, I'm glad to say. So I eventually found my way to some help and guidance and also to acupuncture, which stopped the headaches eventually after Thank six God. Thank goddess, whatever. <laughs> And, and, but that journey of discovery, I think was fundamental for me because what I discovered was instead of being a kind of um, a pretty little wife, um, which is yeah, what the neuroscientist said when he told me I'd lost a third of my brain capacity, he said, and, and I burst into tears when he told me this after the electroencephalograph and, and I burst into tears and he said, why are you crying? You've got a nice husband and you're a pretty face, you'll be fine. <laughs> Whoa. And I, if I'd been stronger, I would have punched him probably. Anyway, um, so I, I began to realize the, that the answer to this question, who am I, was not what I had previously absorbed, as we do, into our very being. And that I had to learn my worth, 
my voice, find my voice, and deal. I have a, a wonderful way now of dealing with this inner critic, which never leaves us really. But now he's, he's becoming my friend. Um, he appears is it a he or is it a she? Is it's it a definitely a he. But he appears as a massive dragon breathing fire. <laughs> and the trick is that you walk towards your inner monster, your inner critic, your however it shows itself. And if you can walk towards it and say something like, I need to sit down and have a dialogue with you. And, and then you sit here and put another cushion for the monster. And in your voice, you say, why did you wake me up at three o'clock in the morning again? And then you go over to the other cushion and answer in the voice of your critic. And it will say you something. Do you actually do this, Philip? I do. <laughs> Regularly. <laughs> that's great uh, so you go is this useful or not should i shut up no it's wonderful it's wonderful okay. because i honestly i think you know i know for myself when i get tired uh my defenses go down my confidence can go down and and i can get into my oh wanting to turn to some guy to help me versus really practicing my own ability to, to, to self-care. And I have a tremendous community of sisters that also provide incredible emotional support to me. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but I really watch the pattern because it's so much conditioning, I think, that I had. I mean, I was really conditioned to be a good corporate wife, I think. <laughs> that was really, but anyway, I didn't want to interrupt you because I think it was, so I've got you on the two pillows, you know, going back and forth on the two pillows. And then the, 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 the dragon in my case, and it's always good to visualize them. He, he blows um, huge smoke and fire out of his nose. <laughs> storms about. And he says, listen, you haven't prepared for tomorrow. You're going to be useless. You're going to fall flat on your face. And um, I, I just give up on you. And so I come back to my own cushion. I say, that is not helpful. What do you really want to tell me? Then I go back to his cushion. He says, well, you should prepare more. You, you should have done your homework. You should have got this off by heart because you're not going to be able to use notes tomorrow. And <clears throat> um, just get your act together. So I come back to my seat and I say, hmm, let's go a bit deeper. What is it that you know that I need to know? Because I know, and I say this as, and as an aside, I know that under that dragon's left foot is a diamond. And that's what I'm after. I, he always has a gem in there. So then I go back to his seat and then he starts to talk sense. And he says, listen, um, when you find your real voice, when you're really grounded and you've got your feet on the ground and you can connect with the infinite above, that's when you can open your arms out wide and bring people with you and share what you have to say with them and help people find their own way. And so then I say, thank you, that is helpful. And so we, we go on like that. And always there's a nugget in, in what he has to say. Yeah, I'm struck by that. I'm still thinking about that diamond underneath the, the foot. Uh, it's a very interesting imagery. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, and I also think, somebody said to me the other day, fundamentally, this is, this is about power, the issue with women. And it's not, I like how you frame it in your book about, you know, about really getting the power with versus power over. And I think women are good with that power with. I think we have a lot of those kinds of skills and abilities, although we could perfect it. Um, but, um, but it's also, I mean, it's interesting in the United States, and I don't know if this is true in the UK or around the world, but I do know in the United States that in the 21st century, uh, women have more of, they are, in, they are in control of more of the financial resources than men. And uh, which I think is really interesting and it's been well-documented uh, and I don't know if it's currently or it's gonna be, but I, I think it, it, it parallels what's happening now that we, need, we may not, we may have, it may be in our names, but we may not be taking charge of it. And, uh, you know, it seems like it's really time to really take charge of money and um, that kind of leadership that's power with, not power over, really taking the lead on that because, uh, I mean, I'm always struck by how, you know, these microaggressions happen at very small scales and they're very similar to what's happening at the global scale. And, you, you know, there's, there's parallel processes uh, rippling. Um, I, I believe we also need to get more women around the peace tables, wherever the peace tables are, because, you know, um, the UN did a study um, when it was called UNIFEM, um, which showed that in, I think it was 2009, only 2.5% of those sitting around peace tables to negotiate were women. Results, those peace agreements only lasted about five years on average. The reason why is that if there had been more women, they would have brought to the table the concerns of the injured, the bereaved, the orphans, the elderly, all the people who have been traumatized by war. They would bring their fierce mother. Exactly. And so the wounds of war would have been more attended to. Now, that num when that number of women goes up even to 10% around the table, the peace agreements last twice as long. This has been documented? Yeah. UN women under Michelle Bachelet, mm -hmm. um, wonderful, wonderful leader, president of Chile, um, she saw to it that that was documented. And um, there's a wonderful organization in the States, in Washington, D.C., called Inclusive Security. And that's, um, that's run by your ambassador, Swanee Hunt. And they, they encourage women everywhere to put forward the biographies of the women they know who should be at the peace table, who are qualified and should be there. And I think that's something we can do um, everywhere where we live. We can put forward women who we know have something to really sound to offer whenever there's a negotiation going on, whenever there's a um, community dispute. It's, these are things we can do locally. And my, my latest book shows, I think, 31 different things that people can do in their kids' schools, um, in their workplace, how to develop the power of listening, because that's the most effective way to deal with a dispute, is to actually listen to the other person. 
and we're, we all think we're good listeners, but most of us are not. Um, and all the simple, straightforward things that are mainly common sense that we can do with our youngsters, like uh, encouraging them to develop a best list instead of a rich list in their, in their community, that kids who've made the biggest contribution should be listed on a, uh, an accolade, a role of honor, kids who've really made a contribution. So Scylla, we are out of pretty much out of time. And I, 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 I know I wanted you to just say something because I thought this was so hopeful. Because you wrote the business plan for peace mm-hmm. uh, 2017? Uh, no, just last year it was published, yes. And I heard you say that uh, just since writing it, I mean, it's really, it is great. Uh, it, you just it, everyone needs to read it. It's it's written very accessibly. It's not a huge tome that you kind of go, oh my god, I'm never going to get through this. It's really really accessible. Um, but I heard you say that uh, you're very heartened by just having articulated this. That it's had you, you just seen a lot of positive impact. I wonder if you could just speak to that for a few minutes because I think it feels very hopeful to me. Thank you. Well, I'm I'm absolutely thrilled at the response because people have come forward to offer their skills or their partnership. Um, in nine out of the 25 initiatives that we proposed. Uh, So we're going ahead with nine of those uh, so far and people are coming to me every day. And getting funding for them and- and Well, that's that's the big problem is to get the funding to get those things going. And I spent last week at big funding events which were, which were, got such a great response. So we'll we'll wait and see until that materializes. But I really like your idea of taxing the arms dealers. And I'm just sort of wondering what's what's happening with that idea, <laughs> given that the NRA in this country is so powerful and obstructionist. Um, well, one of the groups that I was talking to last week was um, bankers, a, a very, very uh, elite group of bankers in London. And so what I encourage them to do is next time they're sitting at a boardroom table or even at a dinner and next to somebody who works for a big arms corporation, that they should just put forward some of the arguments in my book because they're, um, they're killer arguments, if excuse my language, but these, there's so many clear things that can be said now. And I do believe that working at that level is very useful to bring peer pressure. Um, also, if, if we are in any way shareholders through our pension fund, it's worth finding out. If your endowment fund or your pen, if you're at a university or your pension fund, or even your sovereign wealth fund, if you're a government, is uh, investing in any arms corporations because that divestment, that withdrawal of funding is probably the, the strongest, biggest, fastest uh, leverage. Are they very easy to identify? Are there sort of the big, the big five or something? Are they all embedded in other companies so you can't really tell? What? No, no, you can just Google which are the biggest arms traders, arms sellers, arms production arms manufacturers in your country you just google it it's it's all there um lockheed martin in your case boeing and so forth and so on and um so you 
you get hold of your pension fund or your um, endowment fund if you're at a university and say, are we investing in any of these companies? If so, we bring a motion to divest. And that's, that's, that's what's been happening massively in fossil fuels. Divestment from fossil fuels has really got a huge, a huge leverage now and into renewables. And renewables are more profitable than fossil fuels now. So there you go. So there are so many things that um, weapons manufacturers could do with the skills of their workers, which would produce socially much more useful goods. Mm -hmm. Retooling is, yeah. Okay, so any, uh, I know that there is a, uh, just in terms of women and building peace, I know there's a FemQ, uh, an organization that you founded, conference coming up in Los Angeles in June. Any final, final words of wisdom to women in general? Uh, just, I, I feel that um, we need to do more than uh, stand on the sidelines and cheer when there's um, women demonstrations, as there were, um, the Me Too demonstrations. We need to take the essence of what women are saying and what women want and really distill it and get it across to our lawmakers. Um, you, you know, you're lucky in the, in the United States to live in a quasi-functioning democracy. And you can, yeah, you can, in, in theory at least, get hold of your congressmen and women, your senators, um, and you could pick up four or five facts and from my book or elsewhere and just send them those four or five facts and say, what are you doing about this? I'm watching you. Mm -hmm. um, and you could say, we're watching you because you have a huge, as you've just said, you've got a big circle of friends who basically support you in the ideas that you have adopted. And your kind of program, I just want to end by saying how much I appreciate what you're doing, Susan, because you're taking your time, your commitment, and your effort to make these kind of issues known, which not many people do. And I respect you for that. And I thank you. Thank you, Zoa. Thank you. And really, thank you so much for your time and not just your time, but what you're doing in the world and the kind of leadership that you're showing because um, yeah, it's really extraordinary. And um, so I'm hoping that uh, from this interview, people, more people read Business Plan for Peace. I, I, I just noticed some of my friends you know, who are not in the field of peace building. I, they were, it was sitting on my table and they were like, oh, this looks interesting. I said, yeah, really, really worth reading. It's a, it's a short read, uh, read it. It's really, really worth it. Um, so- um, And if, if people find it difficult to get, just go on my website because that's the easiest place to find it. Okay. Probably the, the best bargain. So what is that website? It's just my name. It's www.sillalworthy, all one word, dot com. And is there anything like that else that you want listeners to know aside from the book and FemQ and your website? Is there anything else that they should be aware of? I would love them to have a look at um, a TED talk that I did um, on nonviolence because it repeats a number of what it actually um, deepens some of the things I've said about what we can actually do when faced with conflict. Um, and it's called... Um, 
fighting. It's a TED talk. It's had over a million, four hundred thousand views. I mean, and it's um, it's called uh, fighting with nonviolence. So they just go to TED and they and they Google your name. That it's going to come up. Yeah, I did some other TED talks on aging and so forth, but that was on a lighter vein. But they- well, you did one I saw in two thousand thirteen. It was a te- it was it was a TEDx, and I can't mm-hmm. remember the name of it, but it was fabulous. Uh, okay. So yeah. Searching your name, there's a lot of stuff that comes up, but thank you, Susan, for yeah. all your all your support and all your work. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, likewise. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. So thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, you can find Scylla's bio, photograph, links to her book, A Business Plan for Peace, her TED Talks, etc. on our podcast website at susancoleman.global. And stay tuned for some more great content. Uh, there are so many wonderful people to interview out there, and we are trying to get that content to you Uh, more rapidly, um, we could really use a sponsor. If you know anybody, you'd like to sponsor the show or you know anybody that would like to sponsor the show, please let us know. But most importantly, please keep listening. See you soon.